What's up, what's up? You are now listening to FY Fly the podcast, and I'm your host, Hassan Thomas, along with Remy, and we are here to share tools on how millennials can budget, save, invest, and understand student debt and credit to achieve financial freedom. If you're a high school student, college student, or someone who's interested in gaining more financial insight, this podcast is for you. I'm trying to give me a bag. 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 What's up, what's up, my fly folks out there? How y'all doing? I hope y'all doing all right. My name is Hassan Thomas, a.k.a. CEO Sonny, a.k.a. The Heartbreak Kid, Son Michaels. And y'all know I'm here with my brother, the big general, a.k.a. Remy G. What's up, bro? It's summertime in the city, man. How's the age been treating you? Man, I'm feeling good. It's great to be back in the H, you know? Started my new job this week. Got back from Florida last week. Going to Vegas next week. What future say? Life's good. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, here at FYI Fly, y'all know we like to start off the show with a meaningful quote about money. And this is a show about financial literacy. And financial literacy at its simplest, understanding not only how to budget your money, but being able to save and grow your money effectively and efficiently. And today's quote comes from the New York Times. The cannabis industry has become a gold rush. So it should be no question that today, we'll be talking about Mary Jane. Hold on, CEO. They don't know nothing about that, though. Not at all, bro. Not at all. Call me Sonny Rick James, huh? But anyway, today we're going to be chopping it up about the major players in the cannabis industry, the potential growth this industry has, and then we're going to slide into our insightful interview with former stockbroker and cannabis investing expert, Miss Courtney Richardson, a.k.a. the Ivy Investor. So let's get active. As of now, there are two countries that are major players in the cannabis industry, USA, of course, and Canada. Canada first legalized cannabis in 2018, and since then, they've had some major stocks go public. Yeah, bro, like Aurora, Canopy Growth Company, the Kronos Group, and Tilray, just to name a few. Some of these companies have really benefited from the legalization of cannabis in Canada. These certain companies are able to legally grow, cultivate, and distribute cannabis for recreational and medicinal use. As of now, a lot of these companies are generating losses due to them trying to grow and scale so quickly. I feel like one reason they may be trying to expand so rapidly is they know when the U.S. decides to legalize cannabis, we could possibly blow them out the water. From speaking with our guest, the IV investor, Miss Courtney Richardson, I asked her, bro, I said, once cannabis is fully legalized in the U.S., how do you think the competition between Canada and the U.S. will go? And she said the U.S. will be killing the game purely based on the fact that we have a larger population and our population uses cannabis more than the Canadians. Shoo, New York actually made cannabis legal not too long ago, like March 31st, I think, and Virginia's legalizing it on July 1st. So it seems to me like the U.S. is on a path to legalization. Now, we are not financial advisors, so we can't and won't tell you what to invest in, but they are looking like a really good buy and hold play. Yeah, kind of like getting into Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency early before it blows up. They'll be getting the same effect with cannabis stocks. Facts, because some of the top stocks in the game right now are well below $30 a share. Like, you can get into Canopy Growth Company for $27, Aurora at $9, we got Aferia at $15, and Kronos at 8 Because y'all know whether we're buying stocks or real estate, we're either buying low and selling high, or we're buying and holding, baby. And that's what we do, man. We spend our money on assets, and then let those assets pay for our liabilities. Not the other way around. But since we're on the U.S. scene right now, let's tap in with the good old U.S. of A. So as of now, 36 states have legalized cannabis for medical use. And 17 states, including Virginia and New York, have legalized cannabis for recreational use as well. Bro, I was doing some research before the show, and according to Investopedia, the U.S. cannabis industry is expected to generate 85 billion sales by 2030. And it's honestly just logical. If cannabis continues to be more widely accepted, then businesses will do better, which means stock prices will rise. Like, that makes complete sense to me, bro. But not for real, though. Because back then, cannabis wasn't viewed how it's viewed today. Man, according to the Pew Research Surveys, 67% 67% of Americans believe that cannabis should be legal in the U.S. Bruh, that's more than half of Americans that believe it should be legal. Exactly. It even doubled since the 2000s when it was at 31%, and almost five times when it was 12% of the folks who believe cannabis should be legal back in the 1970s. So it's clear to me that this industry has some pretty good growth potential. Don't you think, CEO? Facts, G. And we can't forget the fact that we have a new president with a new regime that is pro-cannabis. A new president that supports legalization, plus states like New York and Virginia legalizing it, this is definitely looking like an upward-growing industry to me. But as of now, the U.S. is still not able to compete with Canada due to cannabis not being legalized on a federal level. But didn't Moneybag Joe Biden say that he wants cannabis decriminalized and even the folks with a criminal record to have their records cleaned of all drug charges? 
Yeah, bro, but that's going to take some time, G. If cannabis is decriminalized and legalized, then watch out. That would be like letting raging bulls out the cage, man. I'm sure these U.S. cannabis companies are just loading up and planning on how to grow their companies in this ever-changing climate, bro. Facts. Let's talk about some of these U.S. companies. Because I know some of them are trying to link up with Canadian companies, huh? Yeah, bro, they actually have to. Since it's not legal in the U.S. U.S. cannabis companies cannot legally trade on the stock exchange. For example, one company agreed to merge with four high-growth cannabis companies, but unfortunately had to be taken off the stock exchange. Because if your company handles cannabis directly, then you can't be on a publicly traded exchange. It's just like that. And that sucks because, for example, the Canadian stocks are listed on there. Scott's Miracle Growth is on the stock exchange, which is a company that supplies growing products. And even Microsoft is partnered with the company, providing them folks software to regulate the cannabis growth. Yeah, you know it's always loopholes in this world, man. Like some U.S. cannabis companies are even acting as MSOs, which is a multi-state operation. Some of these U.S. companies are having to operate in certain states where cannabis is legal. Man, just imagine the expense that's costing them. Facts. Now imagine when everything is legal and they can cut that expense. They gonna be going up. But let's go ahead and take a quick break and then slide into our insightful interview with cannabis investing expert Miss Courtney Richardson, a.k.a. the Ivy Investor. Let's go. What's up, what's up, my fly folks out there? How y'all doing? I hope y'all doing all right. And today we're speaking with cannabis investment expert and former stockbroker, Miss Courtney Richardson, the Ivy Investor. How you doing, Queen? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So tell us a little more about you, your background, and how you began investing. Mm, how I became investing. I feel like I've been doing it forever. So <laughs> turns out I graduated from college with a philosophy degree. Okay. And you can't do nothing with a philosophy degree. I mean, other than, you know, write well, like they really get you to write well. But I didn't have a job. And I was actually my plan was to go to law school directly from undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't there in my head. I was like, just could not envision any more time school at that time. So my parents were like, that's great. You should get a job. So I was looking for a job. And again, I'm a philosophy major. It's not really that many options. So I got an invite to be a financial advisor with American Express Financial Advisors. They're now was called Ameriprise. Mm -hmm. So I went to them and I got licensed as a stockbroker and I got a, what's called a series seven, which is a general securities license. And then I got a 66, which is like the, it's the license or the law. It's a law about securities, but allows you to charge for your advice. So I got okay. those two licenses. I also have a uh, life accident health license, which is an insurance license. And I was like off to the races, but the race wasn't that great. So <laughs> I was making like a hundred dollars a day. I was super miserable. Mm. And I was just like, how am I supposed to live? So my dad was like, listen, you gave it, you know, you gave it a, a try. You can like find a, you know, part-time job. I, you know, I'll help you out, you know, mm. so you can get your footing. So I did that, ended up getting into banking real quick. And then I was recruited from banking to Merrill Lynch to do 401k service. So I started doing 401k service. And then I was promoted from there to do high net worth advising at Merrill Lynch. So I did that until the market crashed in 2008 and I was laid off in 2009. But while I was working at the law firm doing oil and gas work, I became really bored. I didn't like the work. I thought it was interesting, but I just didn't like like the work, if that makes sense. So, mm. and a lot of my friends, as this was going on, a lot of my friends were starting to make transitions out of their first jobs, starting to have kids, looking to have, buy a house because we, you know, we were being grown up. Yeah. So they were calling me with all these questions. They were like, oh, I got this new job. I have a 401k. What am I supposed to do with it? Or I'm, I'm leaving my job with my 401k. Should I cash it out? Or they said I can roll it over. And I'm like, okay, we're going to roll it over. They're like, well, how do I do that? So it was like, I spent so much time explaining stuff to my friends. I was like, sis, mm. I got a bill. When you work in a law firm, you have to like, you have what's called billable hours. I was like, sis, mm. I got a bill. I can't be on the phone with you. I said, let me write this up. I'm going to write a blog to kind of explain to you what this thing is. And yeah. then we'll kind of circle back. So I started the Ivy Investor. That's how I started the Ivy Investor. And that's kind of how it happened full circle. And then as I started, you know, teaching people, talking about it, you know, social media was still kind of big, but it was different than then in 2014 than it is now. Definitely. So a lot of people reaching out to me and I was just being really helpful. And then I had started having people reaching out to me in like 2016, 2017. And they were like, y'all want to invest in marijuana. And I was like, why? Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, because I can make a lot of money. And I was like, well, how? You know, what do you, this is 2016. Marijuana wasn't popping like that, like it is now. So I was like, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. 
But as time started to go on, more and more people started to ask about it. And they were also asking about Bitcoin at the same time. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, y'all, hold on, time out. Let's figure out what's going on and I'll get back to you. But I mean, I really became fascinated by both of them. Now, marijuana kind of took my facts, most of my mind, because I'm an attorney and there was so much legal stuff to it. And I also started to see how people of color, more specifically black people, have been disenfranchised by this plant for Mm -hmm. years. And it was planned. It was like actually planned in the legislation. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So Mm -hmm. that's what really caught my attention about marijuana. And I kind of in my head was like, well, if we're investing this and we're getting money, then it's kind of part of our reparations. And it's not all of it because that's just not it. But I just thought that, okay, that's another opportunity for us to kind of get back some of the things that we lost. Mm. So that's kind of the positioning that I took with marijuana. But I've been teaching for seven years now and it's been a lot of fun. I still work full time, which I'm not really sure this is still really sustainable anymore. But that's something I'm going to have to reevaluate this year. Mm. I told myself that that seven years, I said, I'm going to have to reevaluate how this is working. So before we jump into those cannabis stocks and things, mm-hmm. I definitely, you know, it's one thing you said really caught my mind and really hasn't left my mind since you said it was how real estate and stocks relate to each other. Mm-hmm. So can you tell people, you know, why those are some of the best vehicles to reach in financial freedom? Well, I guess at the very minimum, they're passive income. And I think we talked about that earlier, just the importance of having something that you're not working for every day. I think we get so used to exchanging dollars for hours, you know, that we just don't see anything outside of it. So when you're investing in the stock market is that you invest your money and you expect now this doesn't always happen, but you do have the expectation. You expect to have more money coming back to you at a later time. Same thing with real estate. You expect to have more money coming back to you at a later time. Now, out of the two asset classes, I prefer real estate for the tax benefits, but real estate gives me lots of headaches. I have a rehab going on right now. I don't even, you can't, I don't even see the gray hairs, but they're there. They're there. I don't think so. I don't think so. Everybody's listening. There. (laughs) But yeah, so here's the thing. The tax code, I tell people all the time, the tax code is the cheat code. And there's a couple of different things about the stock market and real estate, which I'll talk about now, about mm. that the stock, the uh, tax code really kind of says like, hey, this is what you should be doing. So the tax, back up for a second, is that the tax code incentivizes certain activities and disincentivizes others. So uh-huh. for example, they want you to invest for the long term. So they said, hey, to get you invest in the long term, we've given you what's called a long term capital gains rate. So if you hold a capital asset stock or real estate mm-hmm. over a year for investment purposes, we're not going to tax you as your ordinary income. We're going to tax you at the capital gains rate, which caps out at 20 percent. The mm-hmm. ordinary income rate, I believe, caps out. I think it's either 36 or 39 yeah. percent. So you're just really and I mean, the average person is going to get hit with about 15 percent for capital gains. But on the other side, you could get hit with about 25 I wouldn't say 25. It's like 32%. An average person get hit with like a 32% bill if they don't hold a stock for investment longer than a year. So basically day traders, and this is not a bad thing. Day traders and swing traders are fine, but their Mm. tax burden is a little bit higher, actually significantly higher because they're not holding a stock for longer than a year. So Mm -hmm. I just share that to say, you know, hey, when you're investing in the stock market for the long term, the government's going to say, hey, we like what you're doing. We're going to give you a better tax rate. So that's the first thing. And then with real estate, they're saying same idea. If we like what you're doing, we're going to give you a better tax rate in terms of long-term hold. But on top of that, we're going to give you a 1031 exchange, which mm-hmm. means that you can actually roll your profits into another real estate property. So you're not paying any taxes. And then you also have what's called depreciation, where you take the value of the property and depreciate it, kind of reduce it over time. And you Mm. get that hit to your tax. You get to be able to take that deduction on your taxes. So, you know, you're sitting here like, okay, I have real estate, but you're able to get deductions on your tax return for an investment that's doing basically just making you money. So it's kind of like it's the gift gift that keeps on giving. So these Uh are two crazy things that, you know, once you put money out of your pocket for the investment, you get a real, you get a benefit. Definitely. And I love what you said that tax code is your cheat code. Now, so now let's tap into the cannabis market. Mm -hmm. You know, what should my fly folks listening right now, what should we know before investing into the cannabis market? You need to understand what cannabis is. Mm -hmm. Like, let's talk about that. So I always go to the law. So we had the law that we're working under right now is what's called the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Mm -hmm. The Controlled Substances Act of 1970 gives a schedule for certain narcotics. 
cannabis, I'll say cannabis right now. Cannabis was listed as a Schedule One drug in 1970. Mm -hmm. Cannabis included industrial hemp, and it also included marijuana. Industrial hemp is known for CBD. So a lot of people hear CBD and they're like, okay, they know it has something to do with cannabis, but it's not really clear what it is. But CBD comes from industrial hemp. So industrial hemp makes like, so it's kind of like the jack of all trades of plants. So you can make hempcrete out of it, which is basically concrete made out of hemp. You can also make hemp paper. And it's rumored that the early Declaration of Independence was actually on hemp paper. You know, hemp also, you have hemp rope. So there's just different, different fibers. Hemp is very fibrous and it grows in like cooler climates. So Kentucky actually grows really good hemp. So, and we'll talk about this in a second, but when Kentucky, when there was an opportunity for Kentucky to get into the playing field of hemp, they were, they were like front and center. So, but I share that, you know, admit cannabis in schedule one, 1970. So there was a farm bill that 2014, that president Obama passed and the farm bill allowed what was called like a pilot program for industrial hemp. So they said, listen, we're going to kind of try and test this thing out with you guys. We're going to let you, uh, you know, some of you guys can per- um, actually grow some hemp. You have to apply for it and all this other stuff. But this is what we are, we're allowing you to do. But you know where the most of the hemp licenses went? They went to Kentucky. Kentucky uh-huh. has really good soil. I think it's the clay or the sand in their soil that actually does really well with hemp. Pennsylvania was like the second, like second biggest licensor, licensor or whatever, first entity to get them. So it was okay. like really interesting. But funny enough, they couldn't get the seeds in, in the country. The uh, customs enforcement kept taking the seeds and they're like, uh, hi, <laughs> we're actually allowed to do this by the government. That was like, that's nice. <laughs> and it's like, they're like, no, no, no. Run us our seeds, though. And they were like, yeah. OK, uh huh. Just their checks and balances. <laughs> right. They're like, run me my seeds. And they're like, no. And so it took them even a while to get started because of the seed problem, because they had to ship the seeds in from overseas because we couldn't get them here. So that was the okay, whole thing. Wait. Oh, when they took the dog on the seeds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they took the seeds and they wouldn't give them their seeds. So the seeds kept getting stuck in customs. Ridiculous. So finally, I don't know how they got the seeds released for them to mm-hmm. start build, actually creating hemp farms. So in 2014, they created these hemp farms. And well, not 2014, I think it was and like this 16. is in Kentucky, right? Kentucky and Pennsylvania it was all over the nation, but predominantly this type of uh, farming because of this, the climate and the soil did the best in Kentucky and did the best in Pennsylvania. But Kentucky, before it was basically, it wasn't outlawed in 1934, but it was made so cost prohibited by the Marijuana Tax Act that people just stopped using it. But what happened after World War II hit, uh, the government was like, hemp for freedom, and had all the farmers <laughs> grow hemp. Ridiculous. Uh-huh. And then they were like, once the World War II went away, they were like, no more hemp. <laughs> so, but I share that with you to say, so 2014, they did this pilot program. It worked out really well. So when President Trump came in in 2018, that is when they actually officially legalized hemp. So they removed cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. So now mm. it just says marijuana. So that's where you're starting to see everybody have CBD floating around. And it's a lot like you started to see it like in maybe 2017. But it was like, where is this coming from? Isn't this marijuana? I'm confused. So a lot of people were like, yo, what's up? But that's kind of it was coming from the pilot program. And once it legalized fully, now you're able to deal in CBD. They're not really the FDA has not approved it to be placed in foods as of yet. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funky, but people do it anyway. And we'll just kind of rock out and see what happens in the interim. <laughs> but like I said, marijuana is still uh, still illegal. But I give you that commentary to say, OK, so once you know what cannabis is, so you have your um, industrial hemp, which is um, by definition 0.3% of THC or less is industrial hemp. Anything above that is considered marijuana, although it may not be marijuana. Like, just be very honest and very clear. Because mm-hmm. marijuana, like 0.3% of THC, like 0.4% of THC, what is that going to do? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it. So I share that to say, you know, it's a really arbitrary rule, but that's the rule. Mm-hmm. So once you know, so that's kind of where I think the education should start is exactly what it is and how it works. And then so once you understand kind of the basics, then understand the industry. And when I say but understand the industry, it's like, okay, well, who are the players, as I call them, who are the players in the playettes? And so the players we're looking at, we're looking at Canada. We're like, okay, Canada, you have legalized, you've had a legalized market. 
in some way since 2001, which was for medical marijuana. And then in 2018, you have a legalized recreational market. So looking at Canada to see what they're doing, looking at those Canadian companies, like I look at the Canadian companies, I look at Canopy Growth Company, I look at Kronos, I look at Tilray, I look at ACB, which is Aurora, and I look at Afria. So, I so all of those are Canadian companies? Correct. And they're all okay. traded in the United States. So CGC, like I said, is the biggest company in Canada. Um, and I should say in the world, because Canada is the largest like cannabis producing country in the world. And Canada is, mm. like I said before, Canada ain't that big, but given the circumstances. But then you have Kronos, um, which is actually run by an American. And um, Canopy Growth Company has a very large, Constellation Brands has a very large percentage of ownership in Canopy Growth Company. So Canopy Growth Company, uh, so Constellation Brands, you would know them by Corona, Saveka Vodka, that company. Okay, makes sense. And then Kronos has, like I said, they have Altria, which is Philip Morris um, USA. They're actually investing in them too. And so a lot of people have looked at cannabis, and I think this is also something important to know, that cannabis in people's eyes have has competition. So their competition is pharmaceuticals. It's also going to be a tobacco, and it's going to be alcohol. But if you look at pharmaceuticals, tobacco, and alcohol, they're all getting into cannabis because they're like, if we can't beat them, we're going to join them. So one thing that cannabis companies are missing is capitalization or money. They don't have a lot of money because a lot of companies are still hesitant, even if they're legal, to lend to them. Definitely. And so you have that going on. So the way you get more money. So let's back up. Just understanding companies. There's two ways for a company to get money. They can either borrow it and they have to pay it back with interest or they can sell a piece of itself for equity. Mm. And that's where we are familiar with the stock market. So a lot of these companies have, you know, they've actually had companies buy into them or buy a piece of them for them to infuse money into the company. But then also they have kind of some expertise there, too. So I think those are the things that are really important is about understanding the plant understanding the industry and understanding the competition that the industry has and mm-hmm. understanding where the country is going to go in terms of regulation. So there's a lot of things with cannabis that I don't think, I think you can look at tobacco and alcohol as a nice kind of comparison. And mm-hmm. when I say a nice comparison is that when you look at a bottle of alcohol, it tells you how much alcohol is by value, right? You see mm-hmm. it right there. And same thing with cannabis. So you're going to have testing that's going to have to happen of cannabis because they're going to have to know, you know, how much THC is in there, how much CBD is in there. They're going to have to know that and put it on the package. So when I've gone to, when I went to Vegas and they have a fully legalized structure, I was able to look at a package and go, okay, this has XYZ THC in it. Okay, cool. And that's the same thing that's going to happen you know, you're going to need that as the market gets bigger. You're going to have to have, you know, actual dosing. And one of the problems that a lot of people moved into kind of chemical pharmacology or chemical like aspirin and things like that and walked and kind of walked away from natural remedies isn't because the natural remedies didn't work. It was just that they were hard to dose because, you know, it's like, okay, this plant, I don't know how this plant is grown. It could have everything I need in it or it may have less, but how do I make sure that it's effective for my patient? But if I have aspirin, I know this one pill has XYZ milligrams. So the dosing is going to be really important. It's important on the medical side, but even on the recreational side, you have to know what you're ingesting. So those are things that I would like people to really kind of understand, you know, how you're going to be able to decide to decipher or determine how much is in it. And also if there's any solvents left over or any chemicals in the cannabis. So understanding the kind of the lay of the land in terms of the law, understanding Mm. the industry, kind of where the opportunities are, and then understanding the competition and how are they playing the game. And I just tell people generally follow the money. You know, these companies have invested a lot of money in these cannabis companies for a reason because they Mm. see an opportunity. So you don't have to be a rocket science. You just follow the money. And are you going to be right all the time? Are they going to be right all the time? Absolutely not. But they have tools and that can really help them, you know, make educated decisions that they're more right than wrong. Yeah. So let's touch back on Canada legalizing, you know, cannabis on the federal level in 2018. So since, you know, those cannabis companies in Canada can now trade legally on the U.S. stock exchange, does that mean it's a better bet to choose a Canadian cannabis stock over a U.S. stock? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Mm, 
yes and no. <laughs> so, and the reason why I say yes and no is that I think the Canadian stocks are overhyped. You know, every time we turn around, the Canadian companies are the only companies that actually get a lot of play. Whenever something good happens, like we talked about it earlier, Virginia legalized. They're not Virginia legalized, but they're not going to have a legalized recreational market until about 2024. So it's about three years from now. Mm -hmm. But all the stocks did well today because people got excited. Now, none of these Canadian companies have any ties to an American company other than Canopy Growth Company, who has an option to buy our partner acreage company if, if seven years from when they initiated their deal which I think is 2019, that they'll actually be able to, that the United States will legalize and they'll actually be able to do business in the United States basically using acreage's footprint. So, but that's the only company that really has a kind of some skin in the game. And it's really not that much skin in the game because it's not federally legal yet. Mm -hmm. So, but everybody's like, oh my gosh, cannabis. And they just run to all the cannabis stocks, uh, all the, yeah. <laughs> the Canadian stocks. And it's just like, but what does that have to do with anything? So, mm -hmm. That's the first thing. I think they're just overvalued, first thing. Second thing, because as we talked about earlier, is that the American companies that do, we call them MSOs or multi-state operators, those companies have are, are actually trading on the stock market, but they're trading on the Canadian Securities Exchange. Okay. And because they're not trading on the U.S. exchange, they're on like an over-the-counter market. So it's not as, I don't want to say a good as a market, but it's not the same type of market that the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange is. So yeah. the, the execution may be slow. The prices may be funny. You may, there's a lot going on that I think is a little bit difficult for a newbie investor to manage, if that makes sense. Mm. So, but I think there's some better opportunities with a couple of the, the United States companies. Acreage is not actually on my list. Cure Leaf is, uh, True Leaf is, a couple of the American companies that are in multi-states and have actually really made a good footprint or kind of had a really good play there. Those mm. are the companies I'm like, I'm like, okay, I mess with you guys. I think you guys are doing something. Mm. So in short, I look at the Canadian companies. I do have money invested in the Canadian companies. But I don't think, you know, when all the death subtles about kind of legalization and how we're going to move forward, that they're going yeah. to be as popular in terms of an investment once, you know, America legalizes. Because there's not, like I said, there's only five people, but they do have the competitive advantage because all they have to do is once this happens, they're probably going to partner with an American company because they already have a footprint and they already have the infrastructure. So it's a really good mm. partnership. So there's a couple of different opportunities. So the question is that which sector is a little bit more undervalued than the other? And I think the for investors, I think the United States companies are undervalued in comparison to Canadian companies, but we just don't know what's going to pop. So it's kind of like mm. with the dot-com bubble, like we had pets.com, we had amazon.com. One of those doesn't exist, but the other one's a behemoth. Yeah. <laughs> So it'll probably be, you know, a good time to get into those uh, U.S. stocks since they're being undervalued. Mm -hmm. But I really want to touch on, you know, the importance of knowing which market you're investing in when it comes to cannabis, you know, because I know we talked about, you know, multiple states and, you know, how the states have, they're able to control and make their own rules and regulations. Because we said uh, Colorado is uh, medical and recreational and, you know, some other states are just medical. So can you talk about why it's so important to be aware of what you're preparing to invest in? Yeah, educated investor. Like, I just can't emphasize how important being an educated investor is. Like, you just can't beat being educated. In terms of the medical market, the medical market doesn't have as much movement as the recreational market, I think. And I'll, I'll just say it that way, because a lot more people are interested in, in smoking weed or actually just using, I should say, using marijuana. I shouldn't just limit it to smoking because you have edibles. There's so many other ways that you can use it. A lot more people are interested in that recreational model and they may not, the medical side isn't so prevalent, if that makes sense. Now, there's mm. more states that have medical than recreational. Um, we're at 16 for recreational as of today. But in terms of medical, I think we're at like 33 or 34 out of 50. Okay. So I think in terms of the market that you're investing in, I would always look in a, in a company that has a recreational arm to it. If it's a company mm. that just has medical, I don't think that's somewhere that you're going to go far with. But a company that has both and is in multiple states, I think those are companies that I'm really going to focus on. Makes sense. Makes sense. So when these states, you know, do begin to start legalizing, you know, recreational and medical, 
Do you think the U.S. market will begin to start dominating the Canadian market? Or Absolutely. What do you think? Absolutely. We just, we have more people. We have more people. And I think, like I said, I think it's just going to be some synergy between Canada and the United States in terms of kind of cross-border partnerships. But I think the U.S. markets, we just have more people. And I mean, we're still rocking and rolling inside our respective states. So it's not like we're just sitting there waiting on our hands. It's that you have a couple of MSOs operating and, and relatively functional. Now you have mm. some tax issues because you can't take business deductions off of your cannabis business because it's considered an illegal business. You could mm. think a man, I think his name was Jeffrey. I'm pretty sure his name was Jeffrey out of Minnesota uh. that messed up the game for everybody in like the 70s. But yeah, as a business, you cannot take uh, ordinary necessary expenses of business as a cannabis business. So hold so on, now. what what did what did Jeffrey do? <laughs> Jeffrey, let me uh, tell you about our friend. Yeah, Jeffrey. What, what Jeffrey do? You can't just bring that up and not not license something on Jeff. <laughs> so Jeff, Jeff is our friend. So Jeff, in like the set, like 1974, he was a drug dealer. He was a mm. drug dealer in Minnesota, and he was selling, I believe, he was selling like coke. It might have been cocaine. It might have been marijuana. He was selling something and I, I don't remember. He had a, like a whole array. He had some pills. He had actually Quaaludes. We, mm. We've heard about Quaalude before. Um, he had Quaaludes. He had, I think, cocaine. I think he had some marijuana. He just had some drugs. I don't remember specifically what drugs he had, but he got busted. And also one of the things that I kind of talk about is that Section 61 of the IRS, the, what's called the Internal Revenue Code or the IRS rules, more or less. Mm-hmm. says that you income, you have to pay taxes on income from whatever source derived. So Jeffrey was not paying taxes on his drug income. Mm-hmm. So once he got busted, he actually ended up filing his tax return for that year and included his money that he made from his drug sales. <laughs> but he wrote off a part of his apartment as part of his business or as part of his office. He wrote off some mileage on his car. He wrote off a trip to San Diego. He wrote off a scale. He got a scale on some consignment for $50. He wrote that off. Uh-huh. Uh, what else did Jeff write off? Jeff wrote off quite a bit. He had several deductions of ordinary necessary expenses of business. Mm-hmm. So the IRS commissioner or the IRS came back, like the examiner came back and said, oh, heck no, Jeff, what are you doing? You can't do this. You can't just deduct whatever you want for your drug business. You can't do that. So it got appealed to the IRS, to the tax court. And the tax court was like, well, first of all, Jeff didn't have complete records, but he had pretty decent records. And Mm. the one thing they said, which I thought was hilarious, is that we tend to believe Jeff's interpretation of his business. And that was one of the comments that the court said. And then they Mm. said, well, listen. We're not going to give Jeff his ability to write off his trip to San Diego because he didn't have any receipts, but we're going to allow Jeff to write off a portion of his apartment, write off the scale, write off the tele. Oh, he made long distance phone calls. You know, back in the day, them things were expensive, long distance phone calls. And he was able to write off the scale and all those things that, you know, you would think like, wait a second. So once that happened, Congress got a hold of it and said, so basically they said Jeff owed like a little bit of money, like just a very small amount based on the deductions. They allowed him to take all the rest of them. And Congress mm-hmm. got a wind of it. This happened like 1981 when it was finally said and done after all the appeals. Congress got at it and was like, oh, what? Your drug deal? You just write off your drug stuff? Oh, no. So Congress mm-hmm. passed a law that said if you are engaged in the manufacturing or selling of a Schedule 1 or a Schedule 2 drug, you're not able to take any ordinary necessary expenses of business. So because of Jeff, Jeff messed it up for everybody else. Come on, Jeff. <laughs> Come on, Jeff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's a crazy story. You don't even, that drug doesn't even sound real, but it's, it's crazy that, that that really happened. But, you know, you know, I got to ask you the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. So tell me, you know, what are your thoughts about the new president? Everyone wants to know, how does President Biden becoming the new president affect the cannabis market and the future of cannabis investing? He is, I mean, I think he's on board with it. I think you have a Congress, the House and the Senate that are pretty much on board with it, but I think they don't have a lot of time. They have about two years before I think the slim majority that they have in the Senate is going to be challenged and they may lose some seats in the House. 
So I think this is the time for them to strike. I would love to mm. see in a perfect world that they actually adopt the MORE Act, which is the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, which creates, um, has an excise tax on the sales of marijuana. But that money that comes from the excise tax goes into social justice programs. And I think in social equity programs for people who have been negatively affected by the war on drugs. And I mm. think that's it. So I think he's on board with it. I know he's putting out a lot of fires with the COVID and all the things that are going around, especially with the economy. But the mm. best salve for the economy is an additional revenue source. The best revenue source is marijuana. <laughs> you know, I think that's available mm. for an additional revenue source that exists. So, yeah, that's what I think is going to happen. So, you know, I was doing my research on you and I seen something that I really had to make sure I asked you. So can you lace my audience up on what a pick and shovel play is? Ah, uh, picks and shovels, picks and shovels. Are my favorite. They're like my favorite. Cause I, I think so it's kinda like you're getting the best of both worlds. So picks and shovels come the term comes from the California gold rush of eighteen forty nine or something like that. Eighteen forties, whatever. Um mm. and I think it's eighteen forty nine because that's where the forty ers comes from. So everybody rushed out to go, you know, look for gold. They, everybody felt that they were going to be a millionaire off of digging for gold. Now, most people didn't find anybody's gold, but whatever. They did find mm. fool's gold, which is pirate, but they definitely didn't find that much gold. But mm. the one of the things that when they were looking for gold that they needed is they needed a pick and they needed a shovel. It didn't mm. matter if they were successful. It didn't matter if they were successful in finding gold, but they needed the pick and the shovel to even start. So a lot of the companies that did well out of that time had nothing to do with gold. They were like the general store selling picks and shovels. So mm. that's where the picks and shovels play comes in is that you're, you want some kind of exposure to the cannabis industry, but it's not necessarily somebody who's actually touching the plant. So for example, you have Scott's Miracle Grow. Scott's Miracle Grow has a entire arm called Hawthorne, which is their hydroponics arm. And a lot of cannabis growers are growing cannabis in hydroponics and not necessarily in soil. They're, they're growing that? it in water. Growing in Hydroponics is growing in water. So okay. they're using hydroponics to grow their marijuana. So, you know, that's what they're doing. So they have a whole line or a whole business dedicated towards that. So Scott's Miracle Grow is a picks and shovels play. You have Cree lighting, which is LED light. So at one point, everybody was using these high sodium lights. But they got really, really hot. I have to find the case. There's a case that talks about how they were basically canvassing people's homes to see they had like a heat lamp and they would just drive by to see if there was um, a lot of heat emanating from a house. And if mm. they saw a lot of heat emanating from a house and they would check their um, electrical bills and see that their electrical bills were sky high, they were like, oh, that person uh. grown marijuana. Oh, so wow. the sodium lights kick off a lot of heat and a lot of light and they blow out. But the LEDs kind of burn a little. So one of the things you also have to keep your cannabis grow area, you have to keep it at a proper temperature. So um, lighting changes depending on the grow cycle. And so does the heat and humidity changing on which part of the grow cycle you're in. Mm. That being said is that, you know, the high sodium lights, you actually end up putting more money into your cooling because they get so hot. But with LEDs, they don't burn as hot, but you get the same availability when it comes to lighting. So that being said, is that now people are switching over to LED lights. So you want to start mm. looking at LED lights would be considered a picks and shovels play. And then also, I think we talked earlier about testing. There's a couple of companies that do cannabis testing and there's companies that also do um, extraction from plants. There's a company mm. out of Boston and I just offhand, I just completely just lost them in my head. But there's a company out of Boston that has been doing plant extracts for years. They've been doing it mm. since maybe the 50s. So it makes sense that they would kind of move into the cannabis space to do extractions from the cannabis plant. But again, that's a picks and shovel play. Like they do other things with plant extractions, but they do this too. So it's, the, mm. but I would never call them a cannabis company. I would call them like cannabis adjacent. There's also a cannabis REIT, Innovative Industrial Properties, IIPR. They rent space to cannabis companies. Oh, wow. So there's so, and there's another company that actually does the back office for cannabis companies. And, and why is that really even important is that cannabis is highly regulated, even on the state level, is that they have to basically know where every single like plant is and kind of tag it and everything. So there's a system that actually deals with that whole setup. Mm. So that's another company that like, yeah, you're touching the plant, but you're really kind of helping the infrastructure of the industry. And that's pretty much what those picks and shovels play 
how they work. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of people are like, hey, I don't know if I feel comfortable investing in cannabis, but you may say, hey, I really think it's still a good industry and I want to get my feet wet. And there's other people Mm. that I think there might have been a, I want to say somebody reached out to me and said that if they work for the federal government, they can't invest in cannabis, but they can invest. Those are the perfect people to invest in what's called a picks and shovel play. So uh-huh. someone's going to say to you, like, oh, you can't invest in, like, Austria, I would consider a pick, picks and shovels play. So that's, they're invested in Kronos, but they're also a tobacco company. They're Philip Morris USA, and they also give a really good dividend. Same thing with Constellation Brands. They own a piece of Canopy Growth Company, which is the largest cannabis company in, in Canada. But they mm-hmm. also sell, you know, um, Speca Vodka. They also sell Corona beer. <laughs> There's a whole list of things. So it's mm-hmm. basically getting the opportunity to get a piece of the play, but not necessarily touching the plant directly. And, you know, getting a piece of that play and not touching the plant directly. Also, you know, when you say that translates to like those cannabis REITs and cannabis ETFs and different things like that. So can you talk about those type of because I really love I ain't gonna lie to you. I really love ETFs and REITs, you know, being able to, you know, invest and then get that automated. I mean, that automatic diversification, you know, just from one move. Mm -hmm. So touch a little bit on, you know, cannabis ETFs and cannabis REITs and things. So there's only one publicly traded Cannabis REIT, uh, which is the IIPR that I talked about. And then there is MJ, which is, I think, the oldest, one of the oldest in ETFs. And then you also have YOLO. And there is one more. Like, I feel like I always have some random stuff in my head. I'm like, okay. <laughs> my head's like, mm-hmm. we can take some of it, but not all of it. But there's a couple of different ETFs. And to your point about diversification or immediate diversification, it kind of goes back to the point there I was talking about. You have Amazon.com. And you have pets.com. And so we mm. really don't know which company is going to be the Amazon and which company is going to go the way of pets.com, which means it doesn't exist anymore. So the uh-huh. ETF is a basket of stocks. So you kind of get a chance to get exposure to all the cannabis companies that are out there, or not all of them, but the ones that are kind of the top leaders. You get exposure to those and you don't have to pick, but at least you're getting exposure to the industry. So I, I think I'm picking up on what you're saying, you know, with your comparison to the Amazon and the, and the pets.com. So is, is an ETF still a good play when it comes to cannabis investing? Because like you said, we don't know, you know, which stocks are going to be down and, and up and things. So is that still a good play? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. a, a lot of people say, well, I don't know enough about the industry to pick between Canopy Growth Company and Aurora, or I don't know enough between Tilray and Kronos. So I'm just not uh-huh. going to do anything. But when you get involved with a cannabis ETF, you don't have to pick them. They're already picked for you. And there is kind of like a basket of, of those companies. So you have a little bit of Kronos. You have a little mm. bit of Canopy. You have a little bit of Tilray. You have a little bit of ACB. You may have some of the U.S. companies that are a little bit harder to get access to because they're not traded on the major exchanges. You get a mm. lot of different things going on. And you also have the pharma company, which is uh, there's a couple of them, but the most prominent is GW pharmaceuticals, which is the company that had the first natural cannabis drug approved by the FDA. So Mm -hmm. there's just different ways to get involved in it. So I think it's a great way to get involved in the cannabis space. Okay. Okay. So we have a few more questions for you. I definitely wanted to touch on, you know, with you coming on here, you know, I haven't had too much time to, you know, fully dive into, you know, researching, you know, what's going on behind the scenes with, you know, the prisoners that have been locked up for the possession of marijuana. You know, so let's touch on those states that have legalized cannabis and marijuana and things. You know, what are the rules and regulations surrounding those prisoners who have been locked up for those charges? So we haven't had or seen a lot of social equity in those places. That has actually been some of the things that has held up some of the bills. And I'm trying to think, I have some friends in Jersey who were working on the Jersey bill and the Jersey bill, um, I believe, does have some social equity in it. So social equity is basically some clean slate things, which is basically kind of expungement. And then also, so Jersey, they include a social equity tax and they're trying to, then that that whole point of the social equity tax is to address the disparate impact the war on drugs has had on certain communities. And it doesn't really talk about the prisoners per se. So I'm not really sure. They're definitely kind of putting money into businesses and things. And I know that there is a couple of bills that I've seen floating around that have basically said that they're expunging all drug convictions that are mm. nonviolent. So there's some that I've seen. So that's in the U.S. or was that just in New Jersey? Oh, no. It's, well, it's definitely in. So each because 
the federal level hasn't done anything yet. It's some of the states that I've seen. I don't know oh, okay. who's enacted what, but I know it's definitely on the table. And a lot of black and brown people have been advocating, correctly advocating for it because, you know, now all of a sudden it's cool. You know, it wasn't cool before, but it's cool now. And so the people who were doing it before it was cool, they're still getting penalized. Not only are they getting penalized by being in jail, and they mm-hmm. had the mandatory minimum sentences, which were all related to drugs. And if you look at the proportion of African-Americans and Latinos behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses, the numbers are astronomically, like, start, they're just staggering. They're mm-hmm. like 60%, you know, in terms of like, out of all the stuff, like nonviolent drug offense, for real. Yeah. So... It does seem like there are some moves to get that kind of to right the ship there. But offhand, I don't know all of the ones that are out there. I know that I've read some draft bills, but I'm not sure exactly how far they've gone with them. Season three, we need you back on here talking about the war on drugs and the economic and financial impacts that it's had and it is still having today. So I'm time dating Stanford that way. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got you. <laughs> so we got one more question for you. I'm going to read you two quotes, and I need you to tell me which quote is more accurate in your opinion. You ready? I'm ready. All right, bet, bet. So my first quote is, money can't buy happiness. And my second quote is, more money, more problems. Which one is more accurate in your opinion? Mm, I really have, like, like, I really thought about that. I just, oh, I think money can buy you happiness, but to a point. Mm-hmm. And so like there's a point and I think there's an article about it, too, because I want to say we were passing around with a group of my friends. I'm pretty sure that that was I didn't think I read it. We were having a conversation about it and it was like, yeah, no money can buy you happiness to a point. Like if I had a billion dollars, I think I've maxed out on my happiness, you know, uh-huh. but I think you can like money can definitely the lack of money can really make you sad. So I think on the other side is that more money does give you some type of happiness and what, and it can not buy you love. And I'm not saying that at all, but it can really, some of the things that that make you happy, like if I wanted to live in the Philippines for another month, if I have a job, that's kind of hard, you know, now we're working remotely, but even still, you know, if I have money to do that, I can do that. And that may Mm -hmm. give me happiness and that may give me a level of happiness and a level of joy. So I think a lot of people that kind of money can't buy you happiness comes from the the love of, you know, money is the root of all evil. And it's really, that's not even the quote. The quote is the love of money is the root of all evil. So I think that's kind of where that whole idea comes from. And I think there's a point of diminishing returns. Like you can't, no more money would make you any additionally happier. But I think there's a point mm. where, yeah, money can buy you happiness. Okay. Okay. So what do you think about that more money, more problems? I think... <laughs> I think that's kind of true, too. I think they're both kind of true. I mean, when you have more money, you know, you're going to get taxed more. You have to kind of do a little bit more than because I remember when I was in my 20s, I would just file my W-2 and go about my way. Now I have a W-2. I have a 1099. I have a K-1. I have all these documents. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And now not only do I have to file a, a tax return with the federal government, I have to file one with the state. I have to file one with, my lo- with you know, the city of Philadelphia. And it's like, y'all need to leave me alone with all this paperwork. So uh-huh. I think that's a lot. Of, like, to me, it's not necessarily problems, but it's a lot more responsibility that if you don't take care of it properly, it will cause you some problems. Definitely. You know, I definitely appreciate your time. And thank you for joining us on FY Fly the Podcast. Please let the audience know where to reach you. Any final words? Go ahead. Investing is just like excellent. It's definitely a habit. It's something that you do every single like pay period. Even if you can just invest $5 or put $5 aside with the purpose of investing is that you kind of just start investing today. That's what I suggest. You can always find me on my website, www.theivinvestor.com. You can send me an email at uh, info at the IV investor. You can also find me on Instagram at the Ivy Investor, on Twitter, at the Ivy Investor, and on Facebook, at the Ivy Investor. So all those yes, channels. Ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Like I said, we really appreciate you. Thank you for joining us, really. Thank you for having me. Now we're going to take it back to Remy G and me for one of our favorite segments called Did You Know? Let's go. Welcome back. Welcome back to FY Fly the Podcast. And y'all already know what time it is, or maybe y'all don't. But me and Mr. Make a Play finna let y'all know. Did you know 67% of Americans believe that cannabis should be legalized? Did you know 9% of adults aged 50 to 64 use cannabis, which is triple since 2010? Did you know 7 in 10 adults under the age of 30 favor legalization for medical and recreational use? Did you know in 2020 cannabis sales in the U.S. increased by 67%? Did you know recreational cannabis sales witnessed 160% growth in California amidst the pandemic? Did you know 
In 2017, the cannabis industry reached $9 billion in sales, which is equivalent to the entire snack bar industry or to the annual revenue of Pampers Diapers. In conclusion, to wrap it all up for my fly folks still locked in with us, the cannabis industry as a whole is on the path to being a gold mine. If you look at the stock prices now and compare them to where experts are projecting this industry to be, it's a no-brainer. We have seen cannabis become more widely accepted throughout the years, man. What'd you say earlier, bruh? 67% of people believe cannabis should be legal? A 31% increase since the 2000s? That's crazy, bro. But you trying to recap what we learned today, General? Yes, sir. So some of the major takeaways y'all should have noted from today's episode are the cannabis industry has high growth potential. Canadian companies are running the industry as of now due to the legalization way back in 2018. And the U.S. may not be too far off now with the recent legalization in Virginia and New York. Appreciate you, G. So for our action items, because y'all know we can't leave y'all without them. So please, please go do your own research and see if this is a good investment for you. These cannabis stocks are really low. Now, I'm more of an ETF guy, so I'm be looking to jump in on a cannabis ETF. And for those who may not know, whenever you hear the word ETF, just think of it as a group of stocks. So a cannabis ETF allows me to invest into every traded cannabis company in the world. So the benefit of that is I won't be having to put all my eggs in one basket. Like, say you invest into a single cannabis stock and they break a rule or, you know, they don't follow the regulations or something and the government shuts them down. Well, they won't be the only thing that's going down. Your investment will be going down as well. Do you hear me? But if you're investing into a cannabis ETF, if one stock falls, it's all right because we are well diversified across the board. But we hope y'all learned something today. So we need y'all to stay safe, stay invested and stay fly. Thank you all for listening to FY Fly, the podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in next week for more financial literacy insights with our special guests. Please visit our website, social media platforms, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at FYI Fly Podcast. That's FYI FLI Podcast. See y'all next week and stay fly. But don't y'all go anywhere just yet. Stay tuned as each week here on FYI Fly, we like to give an independent artist a place to shine and gain some exposure. And this week's spotlight artist is me, Rumi G, featuring my new song, Baby Dom. This one's for you, babe. Say you always on my mind, think about you on the daily. Got me thinking about our little future, won't you have me, baby? Going off for your love, I won't let a nigga take me. And I'm not a lame, baby, please do not mistake me. I'm gripping with grain, baby, going where it take me. Long distance lovers, baby, and I won't let it break me. On the road like some dice, but nothing about me shaking. I said I'm one of a kind, baby, you can't replace me. Hey, Remy, this is your girlfriend. Uh, you ain't answer the phone, so I'm about to beat you.